let's be honest. The real name of this team is David Beckham's Inter-Miami. David Beckham understands this better than anyone. He is the face of the team, and rightly so. But Beckham's brand is not accustomed to being associated with products that fail, products of poor quality, or products without appeal. Yes, it's still a work in progress, but that progress must become apparent and soon. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about David Beckham's Inter-Miami in our Mossy Makes the Case segment. Mossy's going to be talking about the Argentine love triangle. In our Ask Alexi segment, we'll be talking about the best soccer cities in the U.S. In our Back 3 segment, we'll be talking about Corona and Klopp and so much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light. David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday morning? I am very good. Very good. That was a happy medium. It was a happy medium in terms of your energy level. Uh, And we talked about that last week where you were called out by our friend Keith Costigan for a lack of energy. And then you you countered that and almost went off the scale. But I told you that, you know, in, in this line of work, you can never be too big. Uh, and too bold. But that was good. That was a good thing. Do anything interesting this weekend? Well, for anyone wondering, I did not run the LA Marathon, but I was quite inconvenienced by it because it seemed like every street near where I live was closed off, so I had to find alternate routes to get where did I needed to go. Did you watch it? Were you like a, a bah humbug uh, grouch guy about it, uh, where, you, where they have to divert you around to different places to well, get through all your usual haunts? I went to a pub on Sunday morning to watch the Manchester United-Manchester City game, and then when I got out, it was bedlam because it, right in the middle of Santa Monica, promenade, uh, and, and where the race was taking place, and so... Yeah, I, I watched it for a little bit, but not much. I watched so much soccer this weekend. Uh, you mentioned, you know, the uh, Manchester United, Man City. Uh, so there was that. There was oh, 11 games or whatever it was when it comes to Major League Soccer, women's national team playing, so much soccer out there. I also watched a, um, a documentary, because I know how much you love uh, uh, talking about television documentaries. Uh, have you ever heard of Mike Wallace? legendary uh, broadcaster Mike Wallace, Absolutely. 60 Minutes sure, and, yeah. and before that. He's got a great documentary out called Mike Wallace is Here, and it just goes through his entire uh, career and all the twists and turns, and it, it spoke to me uh, in terms of, I often talk about the performance and the entertainment part of what, of what we do. If you get a chance to watch that, I recommend it uh, highly. It's a real uh, a glimpse into not just him and how he viewed what his job was, but also the transition as television came of age and that connection and that performance aspect uh, that he even brought to the news and the interview. It goes into how he interviews people and all of that kind of stuff. It was really fascinating to, uh, to see that. Did you watch anything interesting besides soccer this weekend? No, I have both The Outsider and Curb um, DVR'd because uh, last night we were working the um, LAFC uh, Philadelphia match, which we're going to talk about in a bit. So I have those waiting for me tonight. I can't wait. Oh, just sitting there like a pot of gold waiting for you to uh, explore it. Okay, cool. Let's light this candle, right? Yep. All right. As you know, each and every week we start the pot off with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. This weekend, Inter-Miami play their first home game in history in Fort Lauderdale. But let's be honest, the real name of this team is David Beckham's Inter-Miami. Given his global status and profile, the success or failure of this venture will resonate beyond MLS and ultimately reflect on him, and more importantly, the Beckham brand. This puts Beckham in a unique position relative to almost all the other owners in the world. With all due respect to Beckham's billionaire businessman co-owners in Miami, they're not the ones who make the headlines. David Beckham understands this better than anyone, and he certainly hasn't shied away from being front and center and using his star power to promote his new expansion team. He is the face of the team, and rightly so. But Beckham's brand is not accustomed to being associated with products that fail, products of poor quality, or products without appeal. His Inter-Miami team has lost the first two games of the season. Yes, it's still a work in progress, but that progress must become apparent and soon. Being an expansion team is no excuse. You need only look at Atlanta United or LAFC. You only get one chance to make a first impression. And this weekend, David Beckham's Inter-Miami introduces itself to the Miami market. Yes, celebrity sells, but only for so long. Eventually, no matter how popular, cool, good-looking, or rich the celebrity is, if the product isn't good, the people won't buy it. 
All right, Mossy, there's my State of the Union for uh, this week. Uh, I'm excited about this weekend to see what this team looks like in its, uh, well, I guess it's temporary habitat, but certainly in southern Florida uh, as they expose themselves and introduce themselves to that Miami market, which we know is an incredibly fickle market. But this is David Beckham, and I'm trying to think of another team out there that is so closely associated with a face and a celebrity type of stature that it all kind of reflects on uh, and falls down on someone like that. And I, don't, I can't think of one out there. It's interesting. The party line coming out of Miami is that they've chosen to sign young Latin American players and model themselves more in Atlanta than the LA Galaxy. But I've heard one or two MLS people bristle at that and say, no, you tried to sign bigger stars. You just weren't able to. And we're still seeing names like Messi, Ronaldo, and Neymar linked with eventual moves to Miami. Is there any chance that we're overrating the Beckham pull? Do you really think there are players out there that wouldn't have otherwise come to MLS or if they did would, would, would have gone to Los Angeles, but because of Beckham are instead going to go to Miami? I don't think we're overselling or overrating the value of having a David Beckham. I mean, we even saw Pizarro when he landed talk about how he got that call. And look, when it comes down to it, it's still about money. But you're going to the United States. And we've talked about how uh, the value of having, uh, having that in your back pocket. You're going to Miami, a place and a destination that a lot of players want to go. And yes, you do have the Beckham head. So I don't think we're overselling. And, and let's be honest, that is part of his job. That is, you use the tools that are at your disposal. And having David Beckham as that recruiter, I think, is, is good. Now, this doesn't mean that, that all the great players in the world are automatically going to want to come there. But I do think because it is associated with David Beckham in particular and the, the celebrity and the brand and the, the icon that he is, he is about flash. He is about bigger than life. He is about bold, beautiful arrogance, if you will, to do things that, that people don't see normally. So tradition be damned. This, this needs to be something bigger, I think, specifically because it's associated with David Beckham. Now, there's a documentary airing right now on Fox Sports called The Beckham Effect, yes. which chronicles his arrival and remarkable impact on Major League Soccer. You were involved in that. You were the general manager that brought him here. Uh, have you seen the documentary? And if so, do you think it accurately portrayed everything? Uh, I saw it. But as with any documentary, you try to be as balanced as you possibly can. But it's always going to be cited one way or the other. And, and yes, uh, I think it did a good job of of from a 30,000-foot level, just establishing, or in many cases, reestablishing how important that was, not just to the Galaxy, not just to Major League Soccer, but to soccer in the United States. I think it did a good job of showing its, uh, its enormity in what was done and the break from tradition. I mean, you, you talk about, people ask me all the time about how did the Beckham thing come about. There's three components to it, all right? So number one, it's money, okay? So Phil Anschutz owned the Galaxy at that time. So you have to get buy-in, I guess it would be, from somebody to spend a ridiculous amount of money, okay? And to Phil Anschutz's credit, he said yes. The reason why he said yes, and this is the second part, is you have to have someone like Tim Laiwicki, okay, who is able to convince Phil Anschutz that this is good money that he's spending, even though it's outrageous amounts of money. And you have to have somebody who says with a vision, this is where we're going. Tim Laiwicki, Tim Laiwicki was wonderful at spending other people's money and having a vision saying, we're going to that mountain. But then third, you have to have somebody that enables you to find the right pathway to that mountain. And that's where somebody that I think gets lost at times in history, uh, Sean Hunter, who worked for AEG. And why is he important? He's important because he was you know, out in front of establishing what we often refer to as the Beckham rule, the designated player rule, which gave you the mechanism in which to sign it. Now, this is getting into the weeds. It's not something that in that documentary they're necessarily going to go through. I didn't learn anything new uh, from, the, from the documentary. It was an incredibly interesting and educational part of, uh, part of my life. But just like anything else, I have my opinions. Other people have uh, their opinions. And there's a bunch of different layers and different things that, that weren't shown in that necessarily and then they and they didn't necessarily need to be shown in it but i think it's a good 45 minute encapsulation of how important that beckham signing was and continues to resonate as you mentioned this upcoming weekend inter miami host beckham's former club the la galaxy mm -hmm. on fox a galaxy team that signed chicharito who many you don't say, people really? 
Many people call the second biggest signing in MLS history behind only David Beckham. Chicharito yet to score a goal. The Galaxy with one point from two games. Most people absolving Chicharito of any blame and saying that the Galaxy just haven't created the chances for him yet. And I think that's fair because every striker depends on service to some degree. But I will say, not to belabor this point, everybody knows how you and I feel about Chicharito, but there is a contradiction to me in the degree to which he depends on service and how excited I was told I was supposed to be about mm -hmm. this player coming to MLS. I think some of his limitations have Hold been on, on. this play <laughs> in his first Hold two games. Roll. Slow your roll. Do the kids say <laughs> slow your roll anymore? Uh, I don't know, but definitely slow it. We talked about Chicharito. And yes, this whole I don't understand what it means he needs service. Okay, well, anybody that's a poacher or somebody, a tap-in specialist, and I'm not, I'm not devaluing the importance of being in the right place at the right time, okay? They all need service. Of course they need service. But the whole point was you don't have uh, uh, Zlatan anymore. Zlatan, and we talked about this before, could create stuff on his own. So is it Chicharito's fault that he is not Zlatan? No. Is it Chicharito's fault that... He evidently needs it to be put right on a platter inside the six with no goalkeeper in order to score goals. No, that's who he is. But we all knew that was who he is. He's not going to create anything on his own. He's not going to beat multiple players. And the LA Galaxy is bound and determined to at least try to set him up. I mean, they're, they're hitting... They're crossing the ball before the opening whistle even is blown. They're, they're getting the ball into, into the box to try to find Chicharito. So... It, this has not so far been a match made in heaven. Big opportunity, and I think will be a, a, a big moment this weekend, as you mentioned, when L.A. with Chicharito, the captain, by the way, Chicharito, go into Miami, an expansion team, a team that's 0-2, if they don't come out of there with, with something. And when I say something, it's not that they can't lose. Stuff can happen. But... Chicharito's got to play. Obviously, at some point, he's got to score just to stop people from talking about it. And according to you, and I learned a lot of people, all he can do is score from two feet out without a goalkeeper. So, all right, <laughs> fine, but get him that ball in two feet out without a goalkeeper, put it in, and get that out of the way. Man, oh, man, if they, if they lose to Inter-Miami, uh, even with Inter-Miami's horrible pink, it's not even pink, I, 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 it, it's, it's shameful. The, the pink that they've tried to try it out there. I don't know what they're going to try about this weekend, but yeah, that will be something to talk about next week. So the Galaxy off to an underwhelming start. Yes. Chicharito, a poor man's people in Zaghi, yet to find the back of the net. <laughs> While LAFC reminded us again uh, last night that not only are they the best team in the league, but they're also the most entertaining. They were involved in an oh, incredible match epic. against the Philadelphia Union, 3-3. You were there. Where did that rank as far as great regular season games? And also, talk to me about the LAFC-LA Galaxy dynamic right now. You had a chat with John Strong and Stu Holden on the pregame show about the importance of LAFC and sure. MLS right now. Yeah, so it was an incredible game. I think, you know, it's a pity that it was so late. It was a 7.30 kick here in Los Angeles and went past midnight if you were on the East Coast. And certainly from a Philadelphia Union perspective, for their fans, we certainly kept them up late. It would have been nicer if more of the country could have seen it because I think it will go down as one of those, one of those great games. Not only were there back-and-forth type of volleying uh, when it came to the goals, but the goals were spectacular. Carlos Vela, again, provided a moment. Uh, uh, Diego Rossi, the center back for the Philadelphia Union, hit a, a just an absolute scorcher 40 yards out, just stepped up and smacked the thing. It's probably still going at this, uh, at this point. So there was so much to feast upon. I was in the uh, broadcast booth with uh, Stu, Hol Stu Holden and John Strong, and I I'm privileged to be able to kind of eavesdrop and see them call a game and it's really fun because I'm listening but I'm also watching it right out of the corner of my eye and watching the game and to see them get so excited about whether it's the goal or way that everything was going it was just a wonderful event and a great I guess a great advertisement for what MLS could be they're not always like that but when they are it's great that, it, that we get it from a Fox perspective that it's on national television uh, and that it's something that's memorable what else from uh, week two caught your attention well, just going back to Chicharito, uh, it should be noted that after that uh, debacle of a game when he you know, touched the ball twice, didn't have any shots on goal, uh, he is the captain, by the way, of the LA Galaxy. He refused to talk to the media. He uh, did not show up after the media. And look, is it, is it weak? Yeah, it's weak. It, it's, it's weak sauce. It, you're the captain. In this moment, this is, this is when you should do it, okay? Now, you can, be a, you can be a jerk, okay? And there's plenty of, uh, of players out there that are. But if you're going to be a jerk, you got to score goals, okay? <laughs> so if he had scored goals and then took off, fine. But 
doesn't score goals, you're the captain of the team, you got to show up. And that's not discounting all the work that he's done, the PR work that he's done, but that's great. But guess what? That's why you're paid all that money, okay? And here's the other thing. Everyone talks about, oh, you know, he's been on uh, the late night shows and he's been doing the circuit and doing all his PR. And everyone talks as if, as if he's running a marathon. He's not running a marathon, okay? This is, this is your job. Take it from me, okay? And I'm not, I'm not saying that, I, that I'm Chicharito, okay? But there was a time where that's all that I did. It's not that tiring, okay? It's not that big a deal. It's not an excuse not to do the other things, okay? Be- because you're so tired out because you had to go on, put on makeup, and talk about yourself or joke and have a, and have a good time. Believe me. Uh, 99.9999999% of the human population would kill or die to be in that position. So I don't want to hear about how he had done so much media or he was you know, so tired out or anything like that. You, you, you go, go into the press conference as the captain, take responsibility, own it, and then, and then go on. And if you're not going to do that, you damn well better be scoring and you damn well better be playing well and, and winning because at least that's what Zatan did even when he was a jerk. What else, Mossy? Anything else? What do you think is going to happen this weekend down there with the Galaxy and uh, Inter? Inter-Miami win. Inter-Miami win. Yes. Oh, wow. That, that is, that's, I guess, best scenario type of thing in that from a content perspective, it generates so much, <laughs> it generates so much, uh, so much stuff for us, uh, uh, us to talk about. They are, as I said in the State of the Union, Inter-Miami is still a work in progress. But I think... Because of that Beckham affiliation, we'll, we'll end it here, it is such a unique type of pressure that this team is facing. And, you know, we've talked about this before. In MLS in particular, as an expansion team, they give you the opportunity to be competitive. And I expect this, this Inter-Miami, David Beckham's Inter-Miami, to sign big players. I expect them to be competitive. I expect them to be entertaining. And I expect more because they are associated with David Beckham. And in the same way that we are of this world, when we talk about, you know, the, the nuance of, let's say, Bundesliga or something like that, the English media or people around the world, they're not going to know about the restrictions that, that uh, MLS puts on teams or the, or the uh, challenges that they have. They're going to look at, this is David Beckham's team. And if David Beckham's team is not winning, if David Beckham's team is not competitive, it's going to be a reflection on David Beckham, and as I said in the State of the Union, on his brand. And that brand is important. It's important to him, but in a certain sense, it's also important to Major League Soccer and certainly important to whatever this Miami thing is going to look like. And when I say Miami, I mean Fort Lauderdale, at least for the time being or the foreseeable future. Mossy makes the case. All right, it's that time again. Mossy makes a case. Mossy, what are you casing for this week? My case is that Argentinians ought to have room in their hearts for more than one hero. This past weekend, the Argentinian Superliga came to a dramatic conclusion. River Plate entered the final round with a one-point lead over their eternal rivals, Boca Juniors. All they needed was a win over Atletico Tucumán to wrap up their first league title since 2014. But they drew 1-1, which opened the door for Boca. And Boca promptly snatched the crown thanks to a 1-0 home victory over a gimnasia side, which happens to be managed by none other than Diego Armando Maradona. Maradona's return to La Bombonera dominated the build-up to this match. He's been feted in every other stadium in Argentina this season, but there was talk that Boca would be the one team not to honor his presence. Reason being, he has a long-running feud with current Boca vice president Juan Roman Riquelme. Dates back to when Maradona was the national team coach and didn't take Riquelme to the 2010 World Cup. The feud was reignited a few months ago when they supported different candidates in Boca's presidential election. Riquelme's candidate won. He's now in charge, and he had no desire to play nice with his bitter enemy. But Boca fans sprang into action. Although they've made clear in the last few years that if forced to choose, they side with Riquelme, they did feel like Maradona's return should be celebrated, and Boca gave in to the public pressure and did honor him before the match. But peace was really sealed thanks to the third protagonist in this story, Carlos Tevez. Before the match, he ran over to Maradona, gave him a big kiss on the lips, and then promptly scored the goal that handed Boca the title. A goal and a title, by the way, that sparked a debate about whether Tevez has equaled or perhaps even surpassed Maradona and Riquelme in the Boca Juniors pantheon. Taking a step back from all this, I couldn't help but contrast the passion displayed towards these three men with the, I'll call it, detached admiration that Argentinians have for Messi. And I've come to the conclusion that there's only two ways for Messi to truly find his way into Argentinian hearts, either to win the 2022 World Cup 
or to give Maradona a kiss on the lips. So, Leo, if you're listening, I sincerely mean this. Best of luck in Qatar. <laughs> All right, that was uh, that was awesome. Now, look, I I know we are citizens of the world, but it doesn't mean we know everything about uh, what's going out there. So, for those of us out there, and I'm sure there's plenty of you out there that that don't follow the Argentinian league other than Boca River when you know something big is happening right now. Uh, so, why should we care about this? And I think I guess we should probably expand it out to this question. It's kind of an evergreen question, and uh, you finished there with um, the way that. Diego is revered. I think it comes from, first off, the personality that he is, the larger-than-life type of personality that he is. But the way that he is, the, the paths, sometimes interesting and, and strange paths that he has taken, it, it endears him in a way that Messi, first off, I don't think wants to. I don't think Messi, Messi wants to take those paths. And even if he did, I don't think because of who he is, the more introverted type of individual and private individual, he couldn't, he couldn't take that path. Is, I guess the comes down to this, is Messi, are, are we saying Argentine or Argentinian? What, you said Argentinian, right? I said Argentinian. I was always told that you're supposed to say Argentine. Let's look it up. Hold on. Let's, let's make sure we have this here. Okay. Argentina, Argentine is one of the two adjectives meaning from that country. The other adjective is Argentinian. The difference is subtle. Argentine is a bit more formal. So as you might say, the Argentine ambassador, but Argentinian beef. Okay. So Diego's not beef, right? He's a person. So we, we can call him. Our, well, you can do whatever you want. Evidently, let me, let me try to get this conversation back. on. Okay, track. go ahead. So, yeah, well, Messi, because this might be more interesting. Okay, go ahead. Because he left when he was 13 and has spent most of his life right. at Barcelona, he's always had to fight this notion that he's not as Argentine as these other players I mentioned, Maradona, Riquelme, Tevez, that the Argentinian public identifies more with those players. So that's always been this sort of subplot. Now, I think if he won a World Cup, that would all go out the window. But for the time being, it is an issue that... But also, just the, the, the way that... And we talked about the Beckham brand in the previous segment. The brand, and whether they were doing it on purpose or it's just the way it all happened out, but the brand of Tevez, the brand of Maradona versus the brand of Messi... Who would you rather have a uh, a drink with at a bar? I mean, it's not even it's not even a question. the The social nature of the other two and the gregarious type of personalities that they are, as opposed to to Messi. I mean, it's it's pronounced how different they are. It's interesting. This whole occasion became uh, another chance to litigate Maradona's Boca Juniors legacy because there are younger fans that think his identification with that club has been exaggerated. He only played seventy one matches across two different spells. Uh, but there are older fans that say, no, it was a big deal at the time that he chose Book over River. He led them to their first league title in 16 years. So it's justified that he has statues all around the stadium and the club museum has a whole section devoted to Maradona. So that was an interesting subplot to this whole thing. But I want to ask you about Riquelme because yeah. we've talked about this ex-player fetish, which means uh, clubs hiring. Uh, you want to tell the people who Riquelme is just in case? Uh, Ray Hudson's favorite human being. He's this legendary former Argentinian playmaker who the hipsters love. I mean, he's... Would you put him in top 10 players ever to play for Argentina? Or 10 Argentine players? Yeah, in terms of ability, absolutely. Yeah, he's one of those players that, like I said, the hipsters love. So he, he at times can be slightly overrated. Socrates is a Brazilian that's like that as well. But, but no, I mean, he's, he's a terrific player, incredible career. So we've talked about this ex-player fetish, which means hiring somebody who may not have the greatest credentials in the world, right. but was a famous player for your club, so he quote-unquote understands the culture. And we've seen it a lot with coaching, but we've also seen it in some instances with front offices. It's AC Milan's tried this recently with Maldini yeah. and Boban, and it's backfired spectacularly. But here, Boca now have Riquelme running things. You were a former player with the LA Galaxy who then went to the front office, and as we talked about, you brought David Beckham here. Talk to me about that transition somebody has to make from player to front office when you're having to make decisions from Sometimes about former teammates and yeah. guys that you played with. It's hard. It's hard because you have to transition on and pretty much on the drop of a dime. You have to be somebody different. And people ask me all the time if you would do anything different. And one of the things that I often say is that I look back and I was young. I was 33 years old when I went into uh, the front office and was the president of these different clubs. And I had a, a view and an image of what that person is supposed to look like and say and act like and, and do all those things. And so, in essence, I tried to do that job in 
as somebody that I'm not, okay? And, and it's completely natural. You, you, from afar, you're looking at it and you see the way that traditionally people act. And so when you get in that position, you want to try to emulate that or mirror that and you, you lose a sense of who you are. And you know, part of the reason why you're being hired is, is who you are. I'm not saying you take the locker room upstairs or anything like that because that's also a direct path to failure. But you're also going to come up with competition and a resentment that is, once again, human nature because you've been that player and you've had that type of image and looked upon in one way, and now you're coming up into their world. And they've been either by longevity or by education, whatever it is, they've been steeped in that. And for the first time, you are on that equal plane where they're looking at you and saying, this isn't about kicking a ball anymore. You're in my world now. And this is how, this is how it works. And you have to get past that. And it's not, it's, it's not easy. And then the other part of it is sometimes they are put in positions and asked to make decisions that because they don't have that education or that tenure, it's very difficult for them to do it. And I know that I made mistakes along the way because I didn't have that experience. And so you hope you hope you get you hope you get surrounded by people that can make you better, can teach you the things that you don't know, but also have an appreciation that maybe you're bringing a different perspective. And that's that's not always that's not always easy. And so, you know, for him or wh- whoever is there, they need to get into that position and suss out really quick as to who is surra- who is surrounding them. And then do it as themselves. We're all going to grow. We're all going to evolve. That, you're going to change over time. But trying to be a completely different person to satisfy what you're in your, your – uh, satisfy an image that you have created by what you've seen from the outside, I think that that, that can lead to problems. And by the way, I'm going to get slaughtered for uttering that the word definitely. overrated in relation to Riquelme or Socrates. That's so sacrilege. both Riquelme and Socrates are, over, are, are overrated. Is Tevez above Riquelme? No, you know what I mean. No, there I don't are know certain what you mean. You said they're overrated. A, I think a, we all heard it. We can put the a, tape back. You want to put the tape? We can, we can roll it again and again and again. I think you said that they're both overrated. There are certain players that have a romantic style that really resonates with people. Uh, so they don't. Oh, now he's them. romantic, not overrated. You know those two words don't – I know you're the wordsmith and everything, but I'm pretty sure that those words do not mean the same thing. One note on River. It's interesting in this era in which continental trophies carry more weight than domestic trophies. Anytime a club goes against the grain on that. And River, since Gallardo got there, have won two Libertadores titles and a Sudamericana crown. They haven't won league yet. So they, they were actually more intent on winning the league. So much so that last week the Libertadores group stage got underway. They sent a team of kids to Ecuador to play against LDU Quito. Gallardo didn't even coach the match. Uh, and predictably, it got drilled 3-0. That game had very it's a much... effect. Right? Yeah, they, they had a Liverpool League Cup match feel to it. Yep. And then they don't even win the league title. So it's been a bad few months here for River fans like our colleague Johnny Arraya because they lose the Libertadores final to Flamengo in devastating fashion. And now this. So uh, tough times. As long as we're talking South American uh, football, I have no other Is place that what to we're talking put about? this. Okay. <laughs> so uh, we should address this crazy Ronaldinho story. Yes, I mean, have, yes. have you we'll been finish, following we'll this finish at all? It there, and it is nuts. So give a, give a Cliff Notes version for the folks out there if it's possible. As far as I can gather, <laughs> Ronaldinho and his brother, who, by the way, his brother is to him what Neymar's father is to him. There's always some idiot relative that causes all these problems. They went to... Hey, la familia, you know. Yes, they, they, they went to Paraguay to promote a book and to attend some charity event. And when they arrived at the airport, they had fake it's Paraguayan... It's a boondog. Let's be honest, though. It's a boondog. They had <laughs> fake Paraguayan passports, which, when you're one of the most recognizable faces on the planet, will not go unnoticed. They let them through not to cause a scene, but then confronted them about it at the hotel and confiscated the passports. And the initial inclination of the Paraguayan authorities was to give him the celebrity treatment, bend all the rules, and let him off with a slap on the wrist. Uh, he was taking smiling pictures with Paraguayan cops, and it looked like this whole thing was going to go away. But the paperwork ended up on the desk of some by-the-book judge. And by the way, our boss, Judy Boyd, got yes. a big kick out of me using that expression yes. over email a couple of days ago, by-the-book judge, who God decided... God forbid you follow the law. All right, yes. Go uh, who decided, wait a minute, what are we doing here? This is a serious offense. I don't care who this guy is. And so he decided to kick up a storm about it. And so now the story has taken an ugly turn because Ronaldinho's been arrested. He's been paraded around in handcuffs. He's spending nights in jail cells. So I don't know where this story is going to go, but uh, it's, it's, it's crazy. Please let there be a documentary film crew alongside. And Maradona, by the way, has been tweeting out, justice for Ronaldinho and the truth will come out. It's not clear to me that Ronaldinho wants the truth to come the out truth. here or that any injustice has been, uh, has been committed towards him. Because there's the other him. part of the story where... Uh, 
the, that his his Brazilian passport was taken away because of some shenanigans back in Brazil too. So so it's it is it is a mess, but it is so on brand for this for this incredible creative genius but romantic you want a romantic this guy is a romantic but sometimes yes. romantics live in other worlds i was gonna say you know ronaldinho tried to pass himself off as paraguayan but the jig was up when they watched clips of him as a player they oh. realized he could only be from one <laughs> no country. paraguayan could do what this man did that's a little shot at our good friend roberto rojas a paraguayan real <laughs> up and comer in this business who hosts his own podcast i've been on it you've been on it uh, and he's been doing a good job chronicling this story but uh all right we'll, well, we'll see, we'll see if uh, there will be justice for, for him and he is released and let let loose to go wherever. I don't know. I mean, he doesn't have a Brazilian passport. Can he go back to Brazil? Are they going to let him back to Brazil? He's a man without a country. He's yeah, a like, man like, of the world. Like Stringer Bell, he's a man without a country. Oh, my goodness. All right, anything else, Mossy? No, that's it. Well done. Moving on. Ask Alexi. Okay, it's time for Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on the old uh, social media platforms. You send us questions, comments, concerns. We pick a few of them each week. And Mossy reads them out. All right, what do we got this week on Ask Alexi, Mossy? First up, at Trent underscore Miller 16, what's the best soccer city in the United States? Ooh, okay. So I am going to say, uh, as I said to, uh, to someone on Twitter recently, it is Atlanta. And look, I know the people in Portland are going to scream and yell. I know the people in Seattle. I know people in, in L.A. And this is, this is something that changes. This is like ambition rankings or something, <laughs> or something like that. So it is Atlanta right now. And I, and I do understand, and we've talked about this before, Atlanta has had such a run, but that's all that they've seen. They, all that Atlanta knows is quality team on the field, thousands and thousands of fans, uh, all good times. What are they going to look like when the bad times hit? And the bad times hit everybody at a, at a certain at a certain point. But right now, I think the best soccer city in terms of the support, the sheer numbers, and I use this word all the time, but it's so important: the relevancy. When you look at Atlanta United in the city of Atlanta and the the, the greater metropolitan area of Atlanta. They are not only as relevant, but in many cases more relevant than the existing traditional type of sports teams or entertainment. Everybody knows it. They did a, they, they did a wonderful job with the branding. All of that stuff has led it to be, I think, the best soccer city in the U.S. right now. And that doesn't mean that you can't have a blast. I mean, I was in Nashville last week, and we had a blast. We had a good time. But the numbers combined with the relevancy right now. And look, the, the relevancy that Portland has is incredible. But the numbers, I mean, Atlanta is, they supersize everything and they have supersized their fandom when it comes to, uh, to Atlanta United. And this can change. This can change going forward. We have new markets coming in. We have markets changing. I mean, who knows? Chicago, they're moving back down. There's fire moving back downtown. Who knows? Maybe that becomes the place to be. And there's this rebirth of Chicago soccer playing in uh, playing in Soldier Field. I don't know. Do you have a, Do you have an idea? Do you guys have an idea? What do you got over there, Alex? Do you have a place uh, in uh, in the United States that you think is the best soccer city? Mossy, do you? I'll let Alex go first. Okay. Tough for me to say I haven't uh, had as many travels as you guys, so I'm Alex Dowd punting on his no, no, one and only... It can be perception, uh, too. It can be the perception, and that's part of that. what's going on in a city is that it's able to permeate and actually infect you in a way. If I were to frame it as like where I would like to go see a match, yeah. I would say probably, yeah, Atlanta. Atlanta? Have you been to Portland yet? I have not. Have you been to Seattle? No. Okay. But, I mean, these are all wonderful environments. Like I, I, I got to name someone. Do you have one? Well, let me throw something out at you. Oh, Could you make a case that Los Angeles right now is the epicenter of MLS? Yes. And so immediately when I thought about, uh, thought about this, and, and look, we live here. I think, though, the amount, well, first, the breadth, I guess, if you will, of Los Angeles and what that Los Angeles footprint, it's unprecedented in terms of the size. That's both good and bad. The other part is the competition for hearts and minds and eyeballs. Yes. Soccer is huge in this, in this area, in the Los Angeles area, absolutely. I just think that while I talked about Atlanta being bigger, there comes a point where there's diminishing returns. It gets so big that it becomes diluted to, to an extent. And I think Atlanta maybe is that, that perfect footprint type of size, and that's why I would go there. But 
with what has happened with the arrival of LAFC with those two teams that have made each other better? You know, I don't think that, for example, the LA Galaxy, I think they still would have signed Chicharito. But, for example, LA Galaxy just put up standing room only uh, terraces type of thing, safe, safe standing area. I don't think that gets done without the compare and contrast with what's happening with, with what LASC has and the recognition. And we talked about this, that it's good. Even though there's somebody else coming into the market, this is good. I, oh, oh, I'll, I have a question for you, though. If two is good, is three even better? Does the LA market, we talked about how big and wide it is, is it ripe for a third MLS team? Would you, if you're Commissioner Garber, would that be something that you would think about doing? Now, I know the other teams might say, hey, whoa, listen, we are already sharing our market now, and we let LAFC in. But, look, you could have an Inland Empire type of team, or you could have an Orange County type of team. Do you think that's something that, uh, that to consider if you're Major League Soccer? Eh, three in one city seems like a bit much, no? Well, you should say three in one American city because there's plenty of cities around the world that have three major teams. No, you're right. You're right. I I think that this market can withstand a third MLS team. Tell us what you think out there. Do you think that three teams could function? What do you think, Alex? Uh, Might be some overkill there. I'm with Mossy. You got my back, Luis? No? No? I don't think it can support three teams, but I think that LA is the best um, city for – you do. Soccer. You think LA is the best soccer city? Yeah, I'm on All Team right. Mossy. All right. Okay. But no, I do think it can sort support three teams, and I would love to see it. I love it. Bring it more, more. <laughs> Anything else, Mossy? Well, not for that question. We've no, got okay, two but, more but, to go. Okay. Next up, at McBoom underscore 11. With Liverpool's recent shaky form and Barca not quite being their dominant selves, what team is the best in Europe right now? Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, I am going to say, I'm going to say Bayern Munich, Okay. I think that they are, they're not quiet, but they're always kind of secondary or an afterthought, and they shouldn't be. They're one of the biggest clubs in the world. You look at the talent that they have, uh, they're cruising right now when it comes to what's happening in the club. We saw what they did, you know, last Champions League round. We'll see what they do uh, this next Champions League round. They got guys that are playing. Now, Lewandowski is out, but they've, they didn't miss a beat in terms of replacing, and we'll see now if that can continue on. But yeah, I think that... I think at this moment, but look, if, if for example, Man City finishes off, uh, who are they playing? Uh, Real, Real Madrid. Madrid. Yeah. If they finish them off, and they're not really worried about what's happening in the EPL, I could very easily change my mind and and go that way. And if Liverpool comes come storming storming back, then you know that's that's a that's a good call too. But I'm going to say Bayern Munich. Yeah, I mean, as we sit here today, I still think Liverpool have earned the right to be viewed as the best team in Europe. They won the Champions League last season. They're having by far the most impressive domestic campaign of any club, and they're still involved in the Champions League knockout stage. They haven't been eliminated yet. But if you really want to stress the right now part and say, at this point in time, which of the elite clubs feels the best about itself, I agree with you 100%. I would go Bayern. Lewandowski injury, you know, they've put the Chelsea tie to bed. They advance to the German Cup semis where they'll face Frankfurt, by the way. Leverkusen will take on Eric Winaldo's former club, Sauerbrücken, in the other semifinal, which those games don't occur until like mid to late April. So, and, and so pretty, is what you're as saying. you said, they, they're still churning out the, the results in the Bundesliga. They're in first place. So if Lewandowski comes back when he's supposed to, it will not have affected their chances of winning any of those three trophies. And yeah, I like the way they're playing. And, you know, this Hansi Flick situation has taken an interesting turn. You would have thought whether Hansi Flick will be the coach next season or not would be all down to Bayern. But now you're hearing that Hansi Flick is getting interest from the Premier League and he's kind of saying, we'll see. You know, this might be one of those George Costanza, I'm breaking up with you situations. So we'll we'll see how this plays out at the end of the season. But Hansi Flick all of a sudden. Strutting around, feeling good. (laughs) The Flickster. All right. All right, what else? All right, and uh, we'll end with an interesting question included by Alex Dowd in this week's rundown. At Shane G. Lewis wants to know, any insight to your diet as a player and how it's changed since then? All right, so (laughs) nowadays with the uh, just the the emphasis and the understanding when it comes to diet and and the – the things that are in place, whether it's human or whether it's machine to, to monitor it. It's a very, very different world. Uh, I grew up, so let's start from the beginning. I'll do this quick. Uh, I grew up drinking milk, a lot of milk. I mean, like milk, not just to drink milk, but milk as almost uh, a hydration. 
uh, I would drink massive amounts of 2%, like in those two-gallon cartons. Uh, so I drank a lot of milk growing up. My diet was also supplemented not by good stuff, you know, Slurpees and uh, red vines, Twizzlers, whatever you want to call them, as long as it's red licorice. I've talked about uh, that important stuff. Uh, it was always a, a balanced thing. That wasn't. I, I didn't have any restrictions as to what I ate. I, I ate what I needed and what I felt. Obviously, my taste changed over the years. I got much more into vegetables, not because I wanted to eat vegetables, but because I just enjoyed them much more than when I was a kid. I wouldn't be the first kid to, for that to happen. And so I incorporated a whole lot more vegetables during my playing career than when I was a, a younger, younger player. But it was still just not good. It was, it was not good. Like I said, it was, uh, you know, the, uh, what was the, uh, soft batch type of, uh, chocolate chip cookies, that kind of, that, that kind of stuff. I stopped drinking beer when I turned 30. doesn't mean I don't have a beer every once in a while, but I just stopped drinking beer. Um, I'm no angel because I <laughs> then, you know, started drinking vodka and wine, but I just didn't want, uh, I never, and I stopped drinking pop soda, whatever you want to call it like that. So I don't, uh, I haven't had that. I don't like all the carbonation in that, which is why I survived on Guinness, which is the least carbonated out there. No drugs, no illegal drugs. Uh, I know that surprises people <laughs> when, when I say that. But the training table or the understanding of what I was putting into my body, uh, I, I regret it, but it just wasn't part of the lifestyle. It wasn't part of what was going on when I, when I was growing up. And so I could have definitely eaten better, eaten more regularly. And then when I ate, had a much more balanced type of, and nutritious type of uh, diet. So do I regret it? I guess, but it's, it was just what I was doing. And I was burning so many calories that it was just about putting fuel in that, in that furnace. I just wish I would have put maybe a better quality uh, and level of fuel in that furnace on a consistent basis. And who knows, would it have changed or prolonged or you know, added something to uh, what I was doing out there? Uh, I don't know. And it's a whole lot better nowadays. And it's not, I guess it, was, it wasn't frowned upon, but it just wasn't done back then. And now it's kind of part and parcel with being a professional in the way that you take care of yourself, sleep, all that kind of stuff that it just wasn't th things that we, that we thought about. So... That's, uh, that was my history of, of diet. Uh, I'm much better now probably than, than I was when I was playing, uh, but you're burning so many calories and running around, and you're young and dumb, so it, it works out. I read a story that when Gabriel Jesus signed with Manchester City, he flew to Manchester and had dinner with Pep Guardiola, and he ordered a Coke, and Guardiola looked at him and said, enjoy it because it's the last Coke you're going to have. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, you know, I mean... Look, it makes it makes complete sense, and there were different players at different times. My pregame meal consisted usually of sushi, so uh, as bland as I possibly could get it, so as not to risk anything. So, uh, not that I mean, I know there's inherent risk <laughs> in eating raw fish and stuff like that, but it was mostly uh, benign type of uh, sushi out there. All right, anything else, Mossy? No, that's it. All right, moving on. The back three. All right, it's time for the back three. Some big stories, games, moments out there. Mossy, what do we got this week in our back three? We begin in Italy. Let me get the soccer stuff out of the way first. Uh, Juventus defeated Inter 2-0. Goals by Aaron Ramsey and Paolo Dybala. Uh, the Serie A race increasingly looks like it's going to be between Juventus and Lazio because Inter are fading. But the big story here is this match was played behind closed doors because of the coronavirus, which is wreaking havoc all across Europe. Yep. Games are being postponed or played behind closed doors. It's going to affect the Champions League this week, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Major international tournaments are in jeopardy. The Euros this summer, which of all the years for them to do this, is going to take place across 12 different countries. You also have the Olympics in Tokyo that are in jeopardy. So it's a non-soccer story, but it's certainly affecting the soccer world. And Jurgen Klopp was asked about it after Liverpool's last game. And he bristled at the question and said he didn't understand why a football manager was being asked about the coronavirus. And he doesn't get why people ascribe this great wisdom to celebrities and ask them about topics that they're not qualified to discuss. And Klopp has been universally lauded for that answer. But I'm going to clear the lane here for an ISO because I know you had a very different opinion about this. 
I, I will preface this by saying that I am a huge Klopp fan. I love the coach that he is, the manager that he is, the personality that he is. And that personality is shaped by the reality that he is the leader. He is in charge of one, if not the biggest soccer clubs in the world. He is constantly uh, on stage, if you will, and given a platform and on a pedestal because of the fact that he coaches a soccer team. And I get it. I, I, I understand that in the greater scheme of things, he's just coaching a bunch of guys that run around and kick a ball. I get that. But I do think that his reaction to this was a little bit disingenuous. You know, we're talking about it right now. Why are we talking about it? Because it does impact our lives and it impacts the story of the, uh, the sport that we talk about. So I think it was completely legitimate to ask Jurgen Klopp about how he thought that the coronavirus and the situation going on in the world was going to affect him and his team and the sport that he works he works in. He was not asked to be a scientist. He was not asked to, to go and give all the various strains and give a scientific explanation or to come up with a, a cure to this. No. And so I think he wanted to say this, and I, th I think he used that moment to say something, regardless of what the question was. He used that moment. And that he is lauded for it, fine. But what are we lauding? We're lauding the fact that uh, a coach in this position uh, expressed the reality that he's not an expert on the coronavirus. Nobody, nobody said he was an expert. Nobody asked him a question as an expert. But when they are canceling games, okay, when they are playing games without any spectators, when nobody's shaking hands out there, this is something that I think is a legitimate question to ask the leader of one of the biggest teams in the world. And so I, th I just thought his reaction was a little bit strange. And you don't, I don't need him or anybody else telling me that what he does is not on par with life and death type of decisions from either you know, scientists or somebody, you know, somebody else out there. And so now, if Jurgen Klopp or anybody else in it of, his, of his ilk decide to use that platform and decide to use that bullhorn to talk about, I don't know, uh, Brexit or politics or, hey, Jurgen Klopp, what do you think about the protests in the stands about you know, back in the uh, league that you used to coach in over there in the Bundesliga? Oh, no, can't talk about that. That doesn't have anything to do with, uh, with kicking the ball. So, look. Everything in this life is connected, okay? And so I thought it was a completely legitimate question, and I thought it was an over-the-top reaction from Jurgen Klopp. As, as much as I understand what he was trying to say, I just don't think that that was the moment or the way to say that. And he's not telling me or anybody else anything that we don't know. Well, that segues nicely to our next topic, which is uh, the Champions League round of 16, second legs. They get underway this week. So on Tuesday, Valencia host Atalanta looking to overturn a 4-1 first leg deficit. You might recall after that first leg, I said Valencia are not out of this because they're very tough at home at the Mestalla with the crowd behind them. Oh, and oh, if they get an early oh, goal. Okay. Sorry, we can't talk about that. Okay, I'm sorry. Jurgen Klopp does not want to talk about well, that. If you would like to talk about the actual kicking of the ball, okay, because he just wears a baseball hat and has a bad shave, okay? It has nothing to do with fans in the stands that, and how that all happened, okay? So just talk about the— uh, Well, in any event, the, the match will be played behind closed doors, so uh, a lot of my rationale for why Valencia had a chance here has gone out the window, so we'll see. You, ne you never know a match behind closed doors, which team it's going to affect more. It's such an eerie environment. Yeah. I mean, watching it's that strange. Juventus oh, inter game. The Juventus thing when they scored, and yeah. you could hear the echoes, you could the players screaming at each other and oof. interestingly the other game on Tuesday Leipzig Tottenham there are some German officials that wanted this match to be postponed but they've been overruled the match will go ahead and will have fans uh, they've decided that because all the traveling supporters will be coming from England which is a country that hasn't been that much affected by the coronavirus that it's okay to allow fans in the game and for the match to go on uh, Leipzig in the driver's seat they have a 1-0 aggregate advantage. I don't think Tottenham are completely out of this. They could go there and get a result, but it would require Jose Mourinho to stop whining about injuries for like five minutes and just focus on coaching his team. I mean, have you found this as tedious as everybody else? I think we are at the bottom right now of 
Jose Mourinho in terms of the way that he is being portrayed and the way that he is portraying himself right now. I don't think, I can't think of a, of a time where his, once again, his brand, okay, which is part of the reason why he gets hired, has taken more hits and, and many of them self-inflicted by the way that he has acted. He needs, he needs a moment. He needs a moment that reminds us what he is. And I mean, you see that moment coming? I do not. Um, and listen, he's not wrong. Obviously, losing Harry Kane and Hungman's son is is devastating. But it's been noted. We all recognize that. And by now, any other manager would have circled the wagons and said, OK, let's just move forward with what we have and, and make the best of the situation. And he's incapable of doing that. Every question he's asked, he could be asked what he had for dinner the night before, and he pivots to the injury thing, and he just keeps carrying on about it. And, and I just I don't know what that does to like the players that are playing to have a manager that has so little, so little confidence in their ability to go get a result. And once again, the managers or coaches outside that would kill or die to be able to have even what he has left at his <laughs> disposal out there. So... It's uh, it's a little rich. And we'll see about Tyler Adams, who uh, yep. did was available for this past weekend's game against Wolfsburg. Timo Werner was left on a bench for that game with one eye towards this one. He's projected to start this game. So, yeah, I, I would definitely favor Leipzig to advance. And then on Wednesday, PSG hosts Dortmund. PSG looking to overturn a 2-1 deficit. This match will be played behind closed doors, which is obviously a, a bad break for PSG. They also had their league game this past weekend against Strasbourg canceled, which they didn't like because they have some players coming back from injury that they want to sort of get back up to speed and they missed out on that opportunity so we'll see it's uh Royce still out so it'll be Sancho and Holland leading the attack for Dorman American slash Englishman slash Argentine slash Portuguese midfielder Giovanni Reina uh, I suspect will be on the bench uh, more on him in a minute. Um, for PSG, I think Cavani has moved ahead of Icardi in the pecking order, so I suspect if they're all fit, it'll be uh, front four of Neymar, Di Maria, Mbappe, and Cavani looking to overturn this deficit. But again, in an empty stadium, who knows which right. team that affects more. So, I mean, do you have any sense for what, what we're supposed no, to expect no from this match now? So, so who are you picking? Now? Let's do a quick pick. All right. So so I would go, I would go Leipzig and Atalanta on okay. Tuesday. And I think I go PSG to move on there, but but who the heck knows? And then really okay, and then, yeah, then. and then and then the big one: Liverpool hosts Atletico Madrid. This match will be played with fans at Anfield, and yeah. Liverpool are hoping that it's one of those magical nights that this is the game where they snap out of their recent funk. They're looking to overturn a one-nil deficit. The Spanish media is imploring Simeone to go there and play and try to attack and get an away goal. They think that if Atletico just sit back for 90 minutes, park the bus, and let Liverpool come at them and just rely on it being this heroic defensive performance that that that's, that's yeah that's not going to work out they tried it last year at this stage against Juventus when they had a 2-0 aggregate lead and Ronaldo scored a hat-trick in the second leg and knocked them out and they do have João Felix who missed the first leg but has since come back and is playing very well scored a game this past scored a goal this past weekend against Sevilla you've got uh, Morata who scored this past weekend from the penalty spot so the the Spanish media is urging Simeone to I mean go there and try to get an away goal which would force Liverpool to have to score three I mean do you see that happening or do you think he he doesn't know any other way to handle these situations, and they're going to park the bus. Yeah, they're going to park the bus. I think that uh, Liverpool and Klopp uh, and his baseball hat and his bad shave go through. And remember, no Allison in goal for Liverpool. It's Adrian filling in. So again, further reason for Atletico to try to score. We'll see how they play it. I mentioned Giovanni Reina, yes. so we'll end on yes. this. He has pledged his future to the United States. This story, to me, never gained much traction. This was not like a Serginho Dest. Right. It never even occurred to me that he wasn't going to play for the U.S., but he has come out because people were speculating. So the situation here, Gio obviously is the son of your former teammate, Claudio Reina. Right. He was born when Claudio was playing in the Premier League for Sunderland, so he was actually born in England. So he's eligible for them, eligible for the United States, obviously, has an Argentinian grandfather, so eligible for them, and has a Portuguese grandmother, so eligible for them. And actually, having that Portuguese passport facilitated his move to Dortmund, similar to Christian Pulisic, who, because of his Croatian roots, was have to get that European passport. So he technically could have played for any of those countries. So basically, he could have been laying on balls for Messi, Ronaldo, or Jossi Zardes, and he's chosen Jossi Zardes. such a joke. Um, being Eliza Esther. But no, I mean, so... <laughs> I mean, there were some people questioning his decision. My God, you could play for these other amazing countries. Why the U.S.? And and you had a very uh, uh, well, so, yeah. Somebody I can't remember where it, where it was had had uh, come back and said, if if my son had these choices, given the state of what 
the United States men's national team is, uh, I would be so disappointed. I would be gutted, I think uh, the term was, that my child, uh, my son chose the U.S. as opposed to the other things. And my point to this person was, well, first off, when it comes to Gio Reyna, I don't think it was ever even a question, right? This is an American kid, okay? This is a, a kid who's played for the uh, uh, the uh, U.S. youth teams. This is a kid who has grown up, uh, has grown up uh, and notwithstanding where he was born, but he's grown up ultimately, and he was, well, he was fostered and created by the American youth soccer system, if you will. And so I think that there was never... A question as to where he was going to go and so but he he heard the rumblings out there and felt that it was important for him to come out and make a uh, uh, make a statement so that's great because he's a wonderful talent and we'll see if it continues and if he ultimately can help us it's a it's a it's a good thing for the U.S. team but this guy that was was gutted my point was and you talked about pass, you know passing it to this person or this person this it really doesn't come down to that, okay? It shouldn't come down to it. And maybe I am maybe I am a romantic Mossy. Maybe I am idealistic in the way that I think of the national team, in that the national team for me is and has always been about representing the country that speaks to you the most, representing the country that you feel the most pride for when you put that shirt on, when you put your hand over your heart, when you sing that anthem, and when you go out and represent that country because of that shirt that you are wearing, you have to feel something for that. And I'm not saying that you can't feel it for multiple things, but then you have to decide which one do you feel the most for. And look, I'm not naive. I understand that there is a mercenary effect that happens now, especially with dual and triple and quadruple type of uh, nationals out there that can play for multiple things, and they're looking for the best, the best environment. But I, I guess, once again, I, I choose to... I, I choose to be idealistic in that when all is said and done, you have to feel for that team and that country, ultimately, that you are playing for. And I think that that, that led to this statement, if you will. But I don't think there was ever a question as to who this kid was going to play for. No, I agree with you 100%. By the way, his Dortmund teammate, Erlen Holland, similar boat because his father, Alfie Holland, was playing in the Premier right, League yeah. at the time. So he was born in England. And obviously they have Sancho. So there's a parallel universe here where Dortmund's attack right now could be like England's future attack wow. of Sancho, Reyna, and Holland. Um, hey, look, I mean, it, it, while I'm, ha- I'm grateful that this happened— it would give me plenty of fodder and uh, content if England were to have to go and get <laughs> Americans <laughs> uh, to, to represent them, to ultimately bring them to the promised land once again. And Reyna will definitely be on the next U.S. squad for those friendlies against Wales and the Netherlands. Uh, Greg Berhalter has more or less confirmed that. Now, it, it's funny because it's a catch-22 if you're a U.S. fan. You love to see him rise to prominence at Dortmund and do so well. But if he hadn't been playing for Dortmund's first team and was still playing for the youth team, I think there's a chance he would have been released yeah. for the Olympic qualifiers, which in a perfect world is where you would like to see him at, correct? I 100% want to see him there. And I, and I get it. The, this Olympic thing is, the problem is that it is, it is important and it can be incredibly valuable to the players and then ultimately to the full national team, which is where you hope that you matriculate to. And th- that players aren't allowed or aren't released. I, I get it. I, I understand that you're not going to do that, especially when they become very, very important. But, you know, it would have been nice to be able to have all guns blazing for, for Jason Christ when it comes to, uh, to qualifying. So uh, the squad was announced. Uh, we announced it at halftime of our MLS game, LAFC Philadelphia, last night. Uh, some of the notable names, uh, Richie Ledesma, Ulysses Menez, two kids who, like I said, it, it, or if Reyna hadn't broken into the Dortmund first team, he would have been in kind of a similar sure. boat to those two. Jesus Ferreira, uh, Pax Pamacol, uh, Brendan Aronson, uh, Mark McKenzie, who we watched play last yeah. night. So thoughts on the squad and, and your well, expectations uh, well, for this team? Like you said, we talked to Aronson and McKenzie uh, before the game last night about them being called in. And what was what I was happy to hear was, and then when we uh, we saw Jason Christ talking about it, is that, there's a real sense of responsibility. There's a real recognition of trying to put things right. And when I think about what the Olympics 
are, and we're, we're, we, you don't have any more back three things because this can come right into my uh, one for the road thing. No, right? no, no. That's okay, it. good because you know I want to just expand on this uh, a, a little bit, and I'm going to bring it into the end of the pod here, where we do one for the road, and uh, you know bring you back to you know for example, 1992, the Olympics uh, that I played in, and I look at the the benefit and the opportunity that was, and you know I'm, I can I can pull up the roster here. You're talking about Brad Friedel, myself, Mike Burns, who went on to, to the national team, Mike Lapper, who went on to the national team, Claudio Reyna, who went on to the national team, Joe Max Moore, who went on to Kobe Jones. It goes on and on and on, where in 1990, we were playing in the Olympics in Barcelona, and two years later, a whole group of us were with the full national team playing in a World Cup. And you say, okay, well, that was a back in a different century, literally in a different century, in a different time. Fair enough. Okay, so the 2000 uh, Olympic team, and you go through, and you go through that, and you got have people like Ben Olson, you have people like Landon Donovan, Josh Wolf, Tim Howard, who two years later were playing with the national team, playing in World Cups. And the last time that we qualified, 2008, you look at that: Michael Bradley, uh, Marisa Du, Stuart, Stuart Holden, Josie Altidore. I mean, it goes on and on. It's Sasha Kleschen, who, you know, two years later are playing with the national team and most of them playing uh, in World Cups. So this is this incubator that we have wasted for so long. And I think back to the things that I learned from going through the Olympic process. And we're going to talk a whole lot more about this Olympic team and this quest to put things right, if you will, uh, as these qualifiers come up. And for those that don't know, they happen in a few weeks down in Mexico in Guadalajara. And two teams come out, two groups of four. The uh, top two teams come out of the group. Uh, they play semifinals. Basically, you win the semifinals, and you're going to the Olympics. Uh, that's right, right? I, I explained that, right? Yeah? Yep. So I think back to 1992 and the whole qualifying process of going and playing these games. And at that point, we would play home games. We would play away games. And the experience that mirrored what we went through, we didn't do it for 94, but what we went through through 98 in terms of that qualifying process of being on the road and being in CONCACAF and going into these very, very difficult situations. But at a young age, at that point we were 21 years old, getting that experience, it was so valuable. Uh, And I think that's why we were much more grizzled. And it's not just the individuals, but it's a group. And in this particular moment, when you have Greg Berhalter, who is so focused on kind of doing something different and therefore, out of necessity, identifying young players coming up, there's an opportunity there. And so to waste it yet again would be yet another failure and also an incredible shame. When I think about all of these players that have parlayed a Olympic berth into then playing in the World Cup... And those generations that haven't had that opportunity and therefore have missed out, it becomes that much more important. So to get back and to circle back to talking to young Aronson, for example, or McKenzie, to talk about these players and to hear them be very, very serious about the responsibility that they have and the opportunity, obviously, for them individually. And and that's, that's a good thing. They, in a certain sense, they don't want to let America down. And that's what happened a few years ago when the full national team didn't qualify for the World Cup. They let America down. And we, we, don't want to, we, don't want to, we certainly don't want to make a habit of doing that. But from a practical perspective, I think that our success in 2022 and maybe even more so in 2026 can have a direct correlation with how this Olympic team does, or, and hopefully it's successful, or if it is, if it's failure, it just puts it that much, it just makes it that much more difficult. So I'm wishing this team well. We're going to talk a whole lot more about why you should care about this team, what this team, it's all fine and well to say they're, you know, this is what they need to do. We're going to talk a whole lot more about in the future of can they actually do it and get back to that promised land that's been lost now for multiple cycles. Uh, you know, I, I, I have my doubts, but I was buoyed, if you will, by talking to these, uh, these young players who now are on this roster, and it is, it's in their hand. 
and it's their opportunity here in a few weeks to go down there and I think as to, to quote Jason Christ to put things right and I do hope that they put things right Mossy anything before we head off into the uh, great wide open nope all right. Uh, as always, we thank you for uh, listening to the State of the Union podcast. Send those questions, those Ask Alexi questions in there. Ask Mossy. Uh, we love to hear from you, whether it's good, bad, or we agree or disagree. It doesn't really matter, but send us all your questions, comments, and concerns out there, uh, and we will use them on the pod going forward. Please uh, subscribe and rate and download and review and do all those things that you do out there, uh, and we thank you. It's an incredible privilege to be able to do this each and every week. I, uh, I got a, a wonderful tweet just before we came on air from a father talking about his son who listens to the pod and a 14-year-old son. And so there are people out there of all ages that evidently enjoy uh, what we are doing. And uh, we can't thank you enough for spreading the gospel, if you will, of the State of the Union pod out there. I, I, when I do go out there on the road or even last night over into LAFC, the amount of people that come up to me and talk about uh, listening to the pod as I say, it, it warms the cockles of my redheaded heart. So the more the merrier. Bring everybody into the tent. Uh, we will uh, talk to you and see you again next week. Same time, same place here on the State of the Union podcast. All right, size the day. 